And the clock has run out. LSU is the college football national champion. 42 to 25 over the Clemson Tigers. The coaches meet at midfield. A pat on the shoulder. Dabo Sweeney to Ed Ogeron. Confetti and fireworks now inside the Superdome. So happy for our team. This is about our team. This is about our coaching staff. About everybody wanting to put one go to the great state of Louisiana. I'm just so happy for everybody. Go ahead and say it, Ed. <laughs> go Tigers. How much would you pay for Coach O to narrate your life? I'd probably give my year's salary just for Ed Orgeron to be able to narrate my life and hear that voice all the time. It is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. lot to dive into today because we've got one of the bigger cheating scandals of the modern era. i got a few more thoughts on that now that I've had a night to go over, digest it, and I'm going to share those thoughts with you. Rob Domovsky, Packers beat writer, is going to join me here in about 15 minutes. We'll recap Sunday's win over Seattle, and we'll preview the NFC Championship game this weekend against San Francisco. Don't miss that interview. Plus, I've got Northern Michigan audio for you. Northern Michigan Tuesdays right here on ESPN. ESPN-UP, but let's start with football, where last night LSU took down Clemson 42-25 to to win the college football playoff national championship. Congrats first and foremost to the Tigers, Coach O, the state of Louisiana, what have you. Joe Burrow, as impressive as he was throughout this season, maybe played his best when it mattered most in the national championship game because it was a good game. You know, it was a late game. You know, the, can we all agree that you almost felt like pulling an all-nighter? It, they didn't kick off till about 8.30. They didn't start the fourth quarter till 11.30. Yeah, I'm tired. I'm ready to go to bed. But Clemson does just enough to keep you up, to keep you watching the game. I'm like, I'm tired. I have work in the morning, and I know LSU's going to win it. But Clemson still within striking distance. I am not going to forgive myself if I go to bed and I miss it and Clemson comes back. Plus, I want to see Coach O and I want to hear Go Tigers one more time. And LSU does hang on for the 42-25 win. A game that had a few twists and turns, maybe a little controversy. First of all, let's address the targeting call on Skelsky. By rule and definition of the law, Yes, it was targeting, but there was no malicious intent in there. And that's why I hope if they do keep targeting, that they amend it, put levels to targeting, kind of like a flagrant one or a flagrant two like they do in basketball. To me, it's just an overbroad rule that while it was interpreted correctly last night, you know, if you really dig into the definition, that it did not serve the purpose that it was intended to. I tell you what, though, we're not feeling sorry for Clemson after what happened with the Ohio State game because of that. Clemson had a shot to get back into it late. They were within three in the second half. They had a shot at getting within a couple of scores late. They had a touchdown called back for offensive pass interference. I tell you what, it wouldn't have mattered. Clemson had a 17-7 lead. I mean, we're not talking about that enough. Joe Burrow and that offense, can we agree that this is the most professional a college offense has looked in the modern era? Maybe ever. Maybe ever, because Joe Brady instilled a pro-style offense. And Joe Burrow ran it to perfection. And if you're in Cincinnati right now, you got to be feeling fairly optimistic for what your future holds as far as football goes. I know it's Cincinnati, but man, you, you can't help but watch what Joe Burrow did and feel a little bit optimistic now that that guy's going to be wearing the black and orange here in about, I don't know, nine months? How long, how long are we away from the draft? Four months, so 
you'll get a look at him in the jersey. You'll get a look at him in a t-shirt, shorts, and you know preseason comes up after that. But you'll get a look at him for real in your uniform here in about nine months. Your stat of the day. Joe Burrow was responsible for 14 touchdowns in his two playoff games this year. That's more than two major conferences have scored in all of their playoff history. Since this college football playoff has been around back in 2014, the Big Ten Conference, Big Ten athletes, have scored a total of 13 touchdowns. Pac-12 athletes have scored 11 touchdowns. Joe Burrow, in two playoff games, scored 14 touchdowns. Joe Burrow, in two games, has more touchdowns than two major conferences in six years. That's how unreal Joe Burrow was this postseason and what he was able to do last night. And you know what? We aren't talking about the blown lead by Clemson, 17-7, to because it wouldn't have mattered. Because in the end, Joe Burrow just flat out looked more poised than Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence didn't look good last night. Again, that doesn't mean that he's not going to be great next year or he's not going to contend for the Heisman next year or that he didn't even have a great year this year. Didn't have a great start to the year, but he had a good finish to the year. He didn't look good last night. Doesn't take away from the entire body of work. The fact is, Joe Burrow just flat out looked miles better than Trevor Lawrence last night. And those two were the most important players on their respective teams. And one balled out. The other didn't. That was the difference in the game. LSU wins the national title 42-25. I'm happy for Coach O as well. And he's a guy that, you know, he's got the character. He's got the gruff Cajun accent that we all know and love. It's not just that. And it is really a remarkable turnaround story for him. A guy that needed to step away from coaching back in the 90s as an assistant. He was the D-line coach in Miami back in 92. He stepped away to get his life back in order, his personal life, what have you. He was having some problems. And it turned out to be a permanent leave of absence because Miami turned around and hired Randy Shannon as his replacement. So he's bouncing around job to job. He had the interim job at USC, did very well there, and should have got that job. Pat Hayden, the AD at the time, passed him over, gave it to Clay Helton. Clay Helton's going to get fired next year, and Orgeron is going to enter next season as the reigning national champion. Just a great comeback story for a very affable character. Which, by the way, before we transition over to baseball, before I get Rob here on the phone... I've got this montage of Go Tigers from Coach Ed Orgeron. Go Tigers. 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 You know, with all the talk this offseason with coaches getting hired and fired, hired elsewhere. We were talking about the Egg Bowl with Mike Leach coaching against Lane Kiffin. Are we forgetting Mike Leach is now in the SEC along with Ed Orgeron? So LSU and Mississippi State, when they play together, can you imagine those press conferences? They need to do it together. needs to be a joint press conference together because those two are the biggest national treasures in college football and need to be protected at all costs. Congratulations to Coach O and the Tigers as they win the 2019-2020 College Football National Championship. Tell you what, let's switch over to baseball here before I get Rob Domovsky on the phone, and then we've got Northern Michigan audio coming up in the back end of the show. Yesterday it was announced that Major League Baseball is dropping the hammer on the Houston Astros. But are they really? Because I've had about 24 hours now to chew on this, to speculate on it, let it digest a little bit. And I'm not as enamored with the punishment 
as I was when I was on here yesterday. There was a nine-page report given out by Major League Baseball talking about their findings from their investigation into the Houston Astros cheating scandal. And at first I was like, okay, good. I'm glad to see you know those responsible being held accountable. But how much were the ones who got fired, the ones who were held accountable, not just scapegoats? Let me explain. The nine-page report, which I'm just going to paraphrase. I did not read all of it. I've gotten some of the key highlight points, what have you. There's a broken-down version that puts together some of the highlights. I'm not going to sit there and read nine pages, what have you. But there is a nine-page report out there. And the more that I've learned about the contents of that, the less I like the action Major League Baseball actually took yesterday. Although, I'm not sure what more Major League Baseball could have done. Allegedly, in the report... The Astros were, as we know, banging trash cans, and you know it's kind of like Morse code. A certain number of uh, bangs, for lack of a better word, on the trash can means that that's whatever pitch is coming. They were tipping the pitches to their batters, and the batters would hear the trash can banging. He would know what pitch was coming. Well, allegedly that they had a clubhouse TV that the replay room was feeding them video from, and they could use that video to determine which signals, what signs the other team was using with their pitcher and their catcher, and that would determine what pitch was going to be thrown. Well, allegedly, A.J. Hinch, the manager until yesterday when he was suspended for one year and then later fired by the team, allegedly he ripped that clubhouse TV off the wall and told his team to put a stop to this, which they briefly did. But then in the postseason, they're like, maybe this gives us too much advantage. You know, I don't really want to quit. You know, we've come this far. We're in the postseason. Let's just keep it going. So they got a portable TV where they could move it, and no one would be ever the wise. No one would catch on to it. They could move it, hide it if they needed, and they would still continue to do their dirty tricks. I think my favorite part from the MLB report, though, is the fact that some of the players said, you know what? I don't know how much this trash can banging is actually helping us. Like, I get the idea, but is it really doing anything to help us? And they're like, yeah, but we better just do it anyway. I don't know if it gives us an advantage, but we've come this far. Might as well keep doing it. They didn't even know if the cheating they were doing was helping them. They just thought, yeah, we better keep doing it. We've come this far. We're playing good baseball. That's what I don't like about this. And you know what is probably the biggest thing? They were fined $5 million. That's the max. That's the max penalty that Major League Baseball is allowed to find them. That's a drop in the bucket for the Astros. Okay, that's no problem. That's no problem. But here's the thing. Major League Baseball has maybe the most powerful player association of all the major professional leagues. And they specifically said, Major League Baseball said, they will not come after any of the players that were involved in this. Even though it sounds like they had more of a hand in it than their manager or general manager, who are the two that got suspended and then later lost their jobs. I'm not saying they were innocent by any stretch, but the players are going to get off scot-free. Especially the one player mentioned by name in the report, Carlos Beltran. He's not a player anymore, now he's a manager but you can make the argument, as I did on the Levitard show earlier today, that now that he's managing the New York Mets, that's punishment enough for Carlos Beltran. So now the last piece of the puzzle, it seems like, is Alex Cora. And his suspension sounds like it's going to be even more hefty. Maybe it won't even be a suspension. Maybe it's going to be even farther than that. But his penalty is going to be much more hefty than that suffered by Jeff Lunau or A.J. Hinch. They can't go after the players because of how powerful Major League Baseball's Player Association is. Which isn't right, but what are you going to do? Well, the next logical step would be vacate the World Series. 
make the players give back their rings. Give the commissioner's trophy back to Major League Baseball. Why is Major League Baseball not doing that? You see, even though they brought the hammer down, and it looked like they did anyway yesterday, maybe not so much today. Yesterday it looked like it was a swift penalty because MLB painted this picture that the general manager Jeff Lunau and A.J. Hinch were organizing this. They were the ringleaders, and the players were acting at their direction. So they get the guys most responsible. When in reality, it appears the players were more responsible and Major League Baseball just can't prosecute them. So, under the guise of moral integrity, they decide to make a statement by punishing somebody severely, even if that somebody had less to do with the cheating than those who are getting off scot-free, i.e. the players. I don't know why the World Series is being allowed to stand. I mean, not even putting an asterisk next to it. Major League Baseball, for as swift and hefty As the punishment looked yesterday, Major League Baseball has done nothing to deter anybody from cheating going forward. You think that players are going to look at this and they're going to say, well, we didn't even get punished. We can't get punished. It's going to be the brass who gets in trouble if we get caught, and we don't even have to give up our rings. The title still stands. That's not persuading anyone away from cheating. That's not doing it. Major League Baseball, by allowing this title to stand, by allowing the 2017 World Series title to stand, is doing baseball a disservice going forward. You think about the fallout from the Astros winning that World Series. The Dodgers, if they would have won that series, how would the narrative have changed? How would the narrative around Doc Roberts as a manager have changed? The Astros bumped out the Yankees in the ALCS. Joe Girardi got fired after that. Joe Girardi makes the World Series. If Houston's not cheating, the Yankees win that series. Maybe Joe Girardi keeps his job. You have pitchers that have inflated numbers because the Houston batters know exactly what pitch is coming. And they just hose them. And those pitchers got to carry those numbers in a free agency, arbitration, and contract negotiation. That's why this is disgusting with what the Houston Astros did. And that's why Major League Baseball has not done anything to deter this going forward. The action Major League Baseball took is not enough. And while I'm still hoping that a swift punishment is ahead for Alex Cora, and a long one, maybe even excessive, I don't care at this point, while I hope that's all still ahead of us, it's not enough as long as that Houston World Series title still stands. With that, let's take our first time out. When we come back, Rob Domofsky, Packers beat writer, will join me. We'll preview this weekend's NFC Championship game next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Also glad to be joined in the ESPN-UP phone line by Green Bay Packer beat writer Rob Domofsky. Rob, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're in high demand this week. First and foremost, though, tell me what it was like on Sunday. How much fun was it having playoff football back at Lambeau? You know, Tanner, the atmosphere in there um, was as electric as I can remember. Now I'm getting old. My memory doesn't go back as far as it used to be. But um, it, it was definitely, you could tell there was a sense in, in, the, in the, not just the stadium, really around town all weekend that something special was brewing and uh you know in the press box sometimes it's hard to get like a, a real feel for the atmosphere but this one was so good that it, it that it came through 
even way up high on the seventh floor where we are. It was uh, it was definitely an electric atmosphere. Well, Rob, before we talk about Sunday's matchup, I want to go back to the bye week, really. And the last time we'd seen Green Bay prior to Sunday, they didn't look particularly sharp when they were playing Detroit in Week 17. Aaron was overthrowing a few guys. What'd they do during the bye week to get things going? Because Aaron looked like his vintage self, and the team looked really good. Yeah, I thought the most interesting thing that came out of that bye was was Rodgers talking about how the timing on certain plays just hasn't been there all year. And, and, and what he basically urged uh, LaFleur to do was, hey, we're, let's not try to fix the timing on the plays that aren't working. Let's just use the, the plays that are timed up well, and we can go back and, and worry about the other stuff in the offseason. And, and, and I think in that way he was sort of sending a message a little bit to LaFleur that this is, you know, this is what we, what, what, what's going to work for us, in my opinion. And the credit to LaFleur because – he has been as open-minded as, as any head coach that I've seen been around in terms of listening to his players, gauging the feel of his locker room, and, and, and I think he's really excelled in that area, and he excelled that last week doing that. Oh, Rob, you just posted an article to Twitter talking about some reasons why Matt LaFleur has been successful his first year as a head coach. Tell me a little bit about that article and what's made him successful. Well, here, here's the thing, Tanner, with him. He, he is become somehow, some way, the perfect mix of a player's coach but also a disciplinarian. And that's a really hard, fine line to walk. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure many guys have done it successfully. Usually you have, there's, there's the player's coaches uh, who, you know, sort of give, give way to the, to the guys in the locker room and let them sort of run the show. But the danger in that is that, you know, they take advantage and, and become undisciplined. Or there's the tough guy who finds everybody for everything, and and players, you know, either resent it or 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 you know quit the behavior that's causing the fine. So, you know, I don't know how he's done it, but he's done it in a way where he's sort of become both personalities at once. Uh, Rob, the pack race out to that twenty-one-three lead early on. What went into that hot start? Yeah, I just think it was the rhythm and timing of the offense. Um, you know that that was key. Um, they, they, the Seahawks' lack of a running game, I think, certainly allowed the Packers to force them to play from behind. Uh, Seattle would, would rather run the ball and then take some deep shots down the field, uh, set up by that, and they, they didn't have the first part. I just think all that kind of contributed. But you knew that the Seahawks were, were not going to just roll over. Russell Wilson is, is too good uh, to, to let that happen, and, and, and they made a game of it, as, as I think we all expected that they would. Well, Rob, Green Bay is able to hold on, convert a couple of third downs late. What was the mood after that game? Was it, yeah, we won, we're going on to the NFC Championship, it's jubilation, or was it, man, we got to play better next week than we did in the second half if we want to go to the Super Bowl? Yeah, I think it was a celebration, really, more than anything. Uh, and then immediately the focus turned to, you know, what not so much what happened in the Seattle game, but what we're going to have to do against San Francisco to avoid another you know, 20, what was it, 29 point beatdown out there. Um, you know, that was their worst game of the season. Rodgers only threw for 104 yards in that game in, in San Francisco. And, and if you remember, um, you know, the first series of the game, he gets sacked, fumbles, and the 49ers take over at the, the Packers' two yard line and punch it in, and it's 7 nothing before, you know, anybody had really settled into their seats. So, uh, you know, that's really where the focus turned after the tubulation of, uh, you know, of the moment. It was the reality that uh, this is what they're going back into. 
Orabi alluded to that inauspicious start when the pack went to Santa Clara in November. What should Packer fans look to for optimism this time around? Why should Packer fans feel more confident going in there this time? I, I, I think for one thing, you know, Matt LaFleur has evolved as a coach, um, you know, throughout the season. And, and he even said yesterday, uh, he said, look, I've got to go back and fi- figure out what really happened that day. You know, in, in the immediate aftermath of a loss like that, you know, you, you do dissect the film, but you also know that you've got another game, you know, to prepare for against a completely different opponent, so you don't dive in to that as much as you think you would. You, you more turn toward game planning, but now they'll have a chance to, to, to really figure out where they went wrong in that game from, you know, a preparation standpoint, from a game plan, from a play calling, uh, all that stuff. And, and, you know, is that going to make a difference? You know, I don't know if it could make up, you know, 37 to 8, or 30, yeah, 37 to 8 difference, but you know, it certainly should allow them to have a better plan going in. Is it something that they still dwell on and use for motivation, or have they just pretty much turned the page? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, you know, I don't know about motivation, but more of a learning experience. I mean, they, they, they just have to figure out, you know, what happened there. And uh, But, look, I mean, this is the NFC Championship game. If you, if you don't, you know, if you need something for motivation, you're probably in the wrong business. Rob, how about some of the younger guys, guys who are playing in their first ever playoff game? What would you see from them? Yeah, I saw that the stage wasn't too big for, for those guys. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, they gave up some plays uh, down the field, but, I mean, Jair Alexander and Kevin King, you know, it, it wasn't too big for those guys. Savage it wasn't too big for. Um, you know, offensively, Aaron Jones handled the football, you know, didn't turn it over. Um, you know, so I, some of the younger receivers, you know, Lazard, uh, Allison, Kumaro made some plays, so – uh, and I don't necessarily mean plays with the ball in their hands. You know, we're talking about blocking and, and things like that too, which is you know kind of gone underrated. So um, you know, I, I thought that uh, you know the the idea of that they they didn't have a lot of playoff experience other than you know the quarterback and a few other guys. It, it was it was a non-factor. Rob Domofsky, Packers beat writer, joins us on the ESPN UP phone line. Rob, how about the injury report? Is everybody that's expected to play going to? Yeah, I talked to Alan Lazard in the locker room on Monday, and uh, he got rolled up on on, on the same ankle he had hurt the week before, uh, but said he was okay. In fact, I thought it was a good sign that um, he jogged to the locker room on his own, and he actually beat the trainers there. He was moving, he was moving so well. Um, Brian Belaga's deal was just a sounds like it was just a twenty four forty eight hour uh, bug that just was that hit him really hard. Uh, and, and he couldn't go, but obviously that that should be fine. They did have illness, a flu spread through the team, so that'll be something to watch this week. If if they can keep that quarantined, uh, you know, then there shouldn't be any major injury issues. Well, Rob, you look at these defenses, and these two front sevens are about as good as you're going to find in football. Are we expecting a defensive battle, or will we see the offense put up some points? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, these are two of the more dominant fronts. I think San Francisco's is probably in a class by itself. That that the amount of first-round draft picks they have in their defensive front, I mean, they should be. Uh, this is exactly what they should be. Uh, I think the Packers' offensive line will play much better than it did at that time. If you remember, I think Malaga was going through, had a hand injury. It was trying to figure out what kind of cast he could play with. Uh, and, and you know, offensively, the 49ers, you know, they, they want to run the ball. They want to get the ball into their hands, their tight end. But they're not asking Jimmy Garoppolo to throw it 35 times a game. So, um, it's more of a ball control type of offense, and um, you know I, I I don't know that it'll be it, it's not going to be Houston Kansas City where you know somebody's scoring in the fifties, but 
you know, I, I don't I don't think it'll be as one sided as, as it was uh, in November. Rob, I compare these two offenses side-by-side. Side. The Packers have the clear edge at the quarterback and the running back positions. Which of those two, Aaron Rodgers or Aaron Jones, needs to have a bigger day on Sunday for Green Bay to come out with a win? Yeah, I, I think they're going to have to get Aaron Rodgers to have an, another game like he did uh, against the Seahawks. He was as dialed in, Tanner, as, as I've seen him you know, probably all season. Um, thought, thought he was, was precise, was on target was making good decisions, making good checks at the line. Um, you know, they have to have some semblance of a running game, but they also have to have Rodgers playing at an elite level uh, to, to, in order to advance this to the Super Bowl. There's no question that, um, that, that he looked like the old Aaron Rodgers on Sunday. Rob, in your estimation, how much of this week has been spent preparing for a guy like George Kittle? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a big focus as it was, uh, you know, the first time around as it is when, you know they they played teams with with dominant tight ends. That's just you know it's funny because this is the same offense, right? I mean Matt Lafleur is running the Kyle Shanahan uh, offense, and yet the, the production from the tight ends has been totally different. I talked to one um, NFL scout last week who said to him that was the biggest surprise in terms of the Packers' lack of production was how little they've been able to get out of the tight ends, given how much this offense typically features them. Um, I think it's a, more of a matter of personnel. Uh, the Packers' tight ends just, you know, they're old, they're they're slow. Uh, Graham and Lewis are, are obviously past their prime and just kind of hanging on. I think it's more of a product of that than anything by design. But that's where they're. That's where these same offenses are vastly different. Is is the production that they get out of the tight ends? Well, Rob, anytime the Packers play the 49ers, I know this game means a lot to Aaron, as in Rodgers. Does he still talk about draft night, or does that still hang over his head, use it as motivation, or has he kind of put it behind him? Yeah, I think he's put it behind him more because all the people that were involved in the, the selection process are long gone. Uh, you know, that, and, and, and even the fact that the, quarter, you know, the quarterback they took, Alex Smith, is long gone. It was definitely a storyline for you know, a good portion of his, of his career, but, uh, you know, that is, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably long gone. I did see a note from, I think it was uh, from our people at ESPN Stats and Information, that this is the 25th straight meeting between these two franchises where at least one of the two teams has had an MVP quarterback. So I'm thinking about that, 25 straight games between the Packers and 49ers where at least one team has had an MVP quarterback. Well, as Rodgers gets up there in age and you don't know how many playoff trips he has left, does he ever talk about that? Is he ever open about it, that maybe his window is closing? And if so, what have those conversations been like? Yeah, he, he did. He made that comment last week that, you know, uh, you know at age 31, he, he, he thought he'd you know, get to a, a, a have a, a ton more chances now, five years later at age 36. Um, he knows that, you know, not that the time is coming to an end, but it's, it's coming closer to the end and, and that these opportunities – don't come along very often. And he said a couple of times this year, this isn't the most talented team that he's been on, but it has a certain feel to it where they just find ways to win. And, and sometimes that that's more important. In your estimation, Rob, what's the biggest thing the Packers need to control on their side of the ball in order to come out with a win on Sunday? Yeah, I, I just think starting fast. I mean, like we talked about the disaster start that they had uh, last time. I mean, a, a fast start doesn't guarantee anything as we saw with that Texans Chiefs game the other day, but it certainly would help them settle in and not allow the 49ers defense just to tee off like it did uh, uh, the first meeting. 
what's the mood around the stadium in the locker room right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a definite excitement. Um, players are off uh, Tuesday. They'll get back at it Wednesday. That's when it'll be, uh, you know, that's when the, the real media uh, stuff will ramp up. There'll be, a, I'm sure, a ton of cameras, a ton of national attention here. Uh, the, you know, Matt LaFleur's obviously said he's going to try to keep it as, as normal as possible, but this is definitely not normal, I mean, when you're one of the final four teams playing. Rob Domofsky, Packers beat writer, kind enough to join us here on ESPN-UP. Appreciate the time as always, Rob. Great stuff. Have a great time out there in Santa Clara. All right, thanks, Tanner. Appreciate it. Let's take a time out. Northern Michigan Tuesdays after this on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along. Hey, programming note before we dive into Northern Michigan Tuesdays. Tonight we've got Westwood Patriot Girls Basketball here on ESPN-UP. Jared Koski and I will have the call from Gladstone, and it's our hope that you join us. 7 o'clock pregame, 7.15 tip right here on ESPN-UP. And then Thursday night we've got nba basketball here on espn up we've got the bucks taking on the celtics and what very well could be an eastern conference playoff matchup again this coming season don't miss that game coming up thursday here on espn up with that here's your sports center update former nfl wide receiver calvin johnson will have an xfl tryout next week in houston as a kicker Formerly known as Chad Ochocinco, Johnson has an XFL kicking tryout scheduled for Monday. Johnson did attempt and make a preseason extra point in 2009, and he played for Sporting KC in an exhibition soccer match, so I guess there's precedence if you want to go that route. Chad Ochocinco is back, and he's got an XFL tryout next week. Chargers tight end Antonio Gates has announced his retirement after 16 NFL seasons. Gates is an eight-time Pro Bowl selection, a three-time first-team All-Pro, and a member of the 2000s All-Decade team. And finally, a German man claiming to be the last living relative of Adolf Hitler has been arrested for sexual assault after kissing a 13-year-old girl. Lucas Romano Hitler was convicted and fined 800 euros, which equates to about $886 American. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Northern Michigan Tuesdays here on ESPN UP. I've got basketball, hockey, swimming, and track and field audio for you. It's going to be a full last half hour of the show. But let's start with basketball, plus we'll get track and field in here before the break. Let's start on the women's side with head coach Troy Matson. His team coming off a stretch where he thought they played some really good basketball here going one and one over the last week. We, we played our best basketball this past weekend. We haven't played very well on the road uh, due to a lot of things, but uh, we talked about it a lot and we concentrated on it. And We've played fairly well at home and uh, we actually played our two best basketball games. We played really well against Purdue Northwest. We just uh, shut them down completely. Uh, they had nowhere to go with their offense. I was really proud of the way the girls played. We got the ball inside of Jessica and Aaron where it needs to go every single time we go down the court and uh, we played well. Uh, went to Parkside, got off to a great start against the best team in the North. And uh, actually at one point in the second quarter, had an 18-point lead. Uh, we weren't expecting that. We knew they'd come back a little bit, but uh, they have a great player. And uh, she just uh, took over the game in the third quarter and got them back in the game and actually gave them a lead. And girls fought back, and uh, we got the game tied up with uh, with about uh, 12 or 13 seconds left in the game. Liz Lutz made another big three for us. Uh, Aaron Hunkela steals the inbounds pass and 
we're going to get the last shot of the game. I'm thinking worst case scenario, we're going to go overtime. And, and uh, a freshman with Kaylee Kuhn uh, made a great play. Got uh, to about three or four feet. Uh, had a little runner off the glass. It just came off the glass, uh, off the front of the rim, and didn't go. And and then uh, all kinds of crazy things happened. Um, they actually could not advance the ball uh, because their point guard grabbed the rebound and dribbled it out towards half court. And the referees, uh, I didn't see it happen, to tell you the truth. Uh, referees advanced the ball and. They made one pass, made a shot, and game was over with 1.5. So, you know, when you go on the road and you play that well, you got to feel good about the way you played. Uh, unfortunately, we got a loss in that second one, but who knows? We could have lost in overtime too. So, um, but uh, excited the way uh, we, we've looked the last couple of nights out, the last three games. Uh, we've played uh, our best basketball, and hopefully we can continue to, you know, do those types of things. Our coach was asked about Jessica Schultz and the stretch of play that she's been on because she's been tearing it up. Yeah, she's playing good right now. But we give her the ball every time too. I mean, we uh, you know we just can't uh, you know we can't with Lexi being out and all those points we're missing and Liz not you know probably about seventy five percent or maybe even less healthy. You know we lose about twenty five points on the perimeter and that's really uh, and we just can't we can't man we can't manifest it up we can't figure it out you know it's not going to happen for us this year. So uh, Jessica and Aaron have to have the ball and Jessica's playing really well and. Um, We'll continue to give her the ball, and if anything, I'd want to give the ball to two seniors and say, go and uh, go get us some wins. And uh, right now, I think they're in that uh, mental state that they're they're thinking the same thing. They've played well, both of them. Well, now Ferris State getting set for that matchup on Thursday. Coach gave us his thoughts on the Bulldogs. Same same game plan we've had the last uh, you know three or four nights. I mean, they're going to fast break and go as fast as they can go, and we're going to go as slow as we can go. And uh, they got great guards, and uh, we got, I hope, what I'm hoping, we got good inside players, and we're going to give it to our inside players and say, go get them. And uh, we got to try to keep them out of transition and getting into open areas where they can get the ball to the rim on us with their guards. So um, it's not much different than what we've seen the last few nights, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll continue to, you know, to produce in the post. And uh, our shooters must be ready because teams aren't going to sit here and let Jessica. Uh, continue to do what she's doing. I'm going to start double teaming her even more and more than what she does. But the one thing about Jessica, she's a great passer. And our offense revolves around that. And so I'm not afraid if they double. It actually helps us out sometimes when our shooters are making shots. It actually helps us out when they double Jessica because she's a great passer. And, and uh, it allows our guards to score then. Coach was asked, do you look at the standings this time of year? Is that something that you pay attention to or do you just kind of focus on yourself and play your own game? You look at them. You know, you look at them, but then I, you know, as I told the girls, I said, we could have been tied for first. You know, we're still in second, but we're two games behind them, you know, Parkside right now. Uh, but the thing is, they got to play Ashland twice. They got to play Grand Valley again. Uh, they got to come up and play us and Tech up here. You know, so there's plenty of time uh, to get back, you know, in the hunt of trying to win the North. Uh, the biggest thing that we got to be careful of is making sure that we win the games we're supposed to win, and that's winning at home. Uh, you have to win at home, um, and if we take care of home and we go on the road and beat the teams we're supposed to beat, uh, we will have a chance uh, at the end of the season, kind of like last year. You know, We'll make our move and hopefully be right in the hunt towards the end of the season. Troy Matson, Northern Michigan women's basketball head coach, his team getting set for Ferris State on Thursday. Let's turn to the men's side where we had a chance to catch up with Matt Mackerzak. He gave us his takeaways from the last week. 
We've been kind of consistently inconsistent all year, and we put together three pretty good performances in a row, and uh, that's the best stretch we've had um, up to date. But I wish it would have been four good performances in a row, and um, it's going to be a tough one Thursday to try to kind of right the ship again and, and uh, put together hopefully two good ones again at home. Coach, focus for a moment specifically on the Purdue Northwest matchup. I just thought we did a really good job of attacking their pressure. Um, they pressure uh, harder than probably most of the teams we played all year, and we hadn't seen that before, and it, it bothered me a little bit going into it. And um, I think instead of having their pressure bother us, I think we did a good job of taking advantage of it and getting easy ones. And it was the first game where I thought we really just attacked downhill the whole game uh, rather than looking to shoot. Um, I, they respected our three-point shooting, so we just made it more about getting to the rim, and then some threes followed. Then we turned our attention to Parkside. Coach gave us his takeaways from that matchup. We just didn't have it. We were defensively, um, we were a step slow the whole game. Um, we hadn't played a, a motion team in a while, and we just didn't seem to be ready and prepared to guard them the way we had been every other game in the conference. Going into that, we were first in the league in, in defensive field goal percentage and um, up there in rebounding, and we kind of lost our way a little bit in that one. And um, for whatever reason, we just weren't ready the way we've been in the other games. Well, like Troy and the women's team, Coach Mackerzak has Ferris State on Thursday. Coach gave us a preview of what to expect. They're, I mean, they're really good. They have a national championship aspirations, and they should. Um, their press and their pressure, they force 16 or 17 turnovers a game, which is first in the league, and it's probably pretty high nationally. Uh, we're second in the league in not turning it over. If we're going to have uh, a chance in that one, we're going to have to take care of the ball and not let them get anything easy and, and make it into a game where at least it's basketball, not them having the ball and getting steals because the way they play is unlike anything we've seen and unlike really most teams in the country. They have a really unique style where they're just pressuring you full court the whole game and kind of waiting for you to crack. You heard Coach mention his team's ball-controlling ability and how they're able to limit turnovers and value every possession. Coach was asked about that, if that's been a point of emphasis or that's just been something that's happened organically. I think the, the, the guards have done a good job of understanding that our offense, we, we, what we lack in, in individual firepower, we can't overcome giving the ball up. So um, we've all year made it a priority to make sure we're at least getting as many shots as we can. And the easiest way to do that is not turning the ball over. And um, it's definitely an emphasis. It's definitely something they bought into. The games where we have turned it over, we haven't played very well. So I think that's helped too because when we lose, they're like, oh, we turn the ball over. And so it's definitely been one of those things that has continued to improve. And I think last weekend we were in single digits both games. So, um, I, I just think it's something that the older kids have taken some pride in. Coach even gave us a bit of a preview ahead to Saturday with Lake Superior State. They're really tough. Um, they're really well coached, and they're really, really tough. Um, they play harder than anyone in the league does. Um, that's kind of what they hang their hat on, and um, they they have very good movement on offense, and then defensively they pressure you as well. So um, the nice part is I think Ferris will prepares for the most pressure and hopefully that helps us a little bit against Lake State's pressure and they, they defensively run um, a lot of different defenses they kind of try to confuse you both offensively and defensively by doing some kind of odd things and some different things and so it's going to be a game where we have to kind of again not get rattled it's going to be a big weekend for composure and us just kind of stay in the course and 
playing basketball and not letting kind of the uniqueness of either opponent change the way we play. Because uh, at the end of the day, we're still trying to throw the ball around and put it in the hoop. Matt Mackerzak, Northern Michigan men's basketball head coach, his team getting set for Ferris State on Thursday. Before we hit the break, let's talk a little track and field with head coach Jenny Ryan. She's got her home meet coming up this weekend, her first and only of the season. Well, it's our only home meet of the year, so it's uh, Saturday. The field events start at 1230, and the running events start at 130. We're going to honor our seniors at 1 o'clock. The kids get to, you know, compete at home. Um, it's hard for us to get many teams to come up here, so it's just Tech um, and then the local club team. Uh, we're actually going to have some of the NMU soccer guys are going to compete in some of the some of the events, and then. Um, but yeah, it's it's just nice to be able to compete at home and, and a chance to you know see where we are after the break. We had one meet uh, December seventh before the break, and then the the kids came back a little bit early, but we uh, they had a lot of time at home. So, but happy to see that they all you know, trained over the, the break and looking strong. And so it's a chance just to kind of see where we are at this point. And then we travel pretty much every weekend after that, except for one weekend um, before the conference championship. So definitely, you know, great, great start to the indoor season and uh, excited to see what we can do this, this year. Coach was asked if anybody's been impressive to her here early on. You know, we have Izzy Peterson back for sprints and then, uh, Caitlin Smith now is healthy for for the distance, um, and then Nina Ogston in the heptathlon. Uh, those I think are the the biggest stars. But then all the way around, we have some some strong athletes and so should have some good performances. We did lose some great talent from last year with Shayla Hubner and Michelle Jurgen and uh, Paige Dutcher, and um, so we lost some big talent. But we have some new athletes that came in, and then the group that's coming back from last year's definitely came back stronger this year and all fall had some some good training so should be an exciting year coach was asked could Izzy repeat as an all-american this year I think so you know she's had a few little injuries it's mostly shins but she she's as strong as ever and you know looking good and that we do have a good good sprint group so I think not only her in that one but then as we get into outdoor the four by one and uh, distance medley relay which is only an indoor event is could be a good one too because we have some good mid-distance and a couple new kids that are that are strong in that plus ones that came back so could be could be any anything but yeah definitely Izzy and then Caitlin's looking really strong in the for the 5k 3k and then you know outdoor for the for the 10k so see some good things and then Nina our heptathlete uh, she's she's definitely improved in every event so a good shot I think to to go to nationals. Jenny Ryan, Northern Michigan track and field head coach, her team getting set for their first and only home meet on Saturday. Let's take another time out. When we come back, I've got swimming and hockey audio for you from Northern Michigan next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any of today's show, it's on demand with our free mobile app. You can get it from the Apple iStore, Google Play, or look up ESPNUP.com and check out the on-demand there. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along as we watch down this Tuesday afternoon. I've got Northern Michigan hockey and swimming sound for you. Grandpa Tony and Heidi Voigt had a chance to talk with both earlier today. Let's start on the hockey side of things where Grandpa Tony's guys have won five in a row. They come off a sweep of Alaska Anchorage over the weekend. Looking at it, I thought our physicality was not where it needed to be. 
Um, and if you look at the games that we've really played well, I think that's been a big factor for us, and, and that allows our forecheck to get going, and then you know gets us some end zone offense time. And you know, even though we scored six goals on Saturday, we had two faceoff goals, power play goal, and a shorty. So you score two five on five goals. Um, you probably lose the game, but you do it without the other goals. You know, we, we had three disallowed. Um, part of it, I think, you know, hopefully was just a little bit of a hangover from, you know, Bowling Green's a tough series on the road. You're tired, first time back in your rink, some of those things. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to win the games. And um, we did that, but our physicality has to, has to improve. Vincent DeMay was kind of in a scoring slump for a little bit. He breaks out of it in a big way, needing just one period Saturday night to record a hat trick. It's great to see him do that. Um, goal scores can be streaky, um, you know, like, like any of them are. But I think Vinny was playing well and not scoring. And then I thought he hit a little bit of a lull. And, um, you know, was getting some shots. And sometimes as a as a offensive guy you equate shots with playing well um you know i thought that he had taken a dip a little bit in this game and um you know he had to find his way out of it and uh and ty did too you know ty and Vinny have kind of gone together all year and you know when when they're playing well they seem to generate offense and you know when they're not um you know like a lot of young offensive players you know they probably don't impact the game as much as you would hope um that, you know, a guy like maybe Garrett Klee could without generating offense. Nolan Kent was honored for the second straight week as WCHA Goalie of the Week. Coach shared his thoughts on that. Well-deserved again. Um, I thought um, they played very well Friday. Um, I thought Saturday we played poorly in front of him. Um, just we gave up a lot of scoring chances, too many shots, you know, and um, he's kind of on a roll. And, you know, confidence is a funny thing. And, you know, for any athlete, when you're playing well, you want to just keep going and get after it and keep playing. And, um, you know, hopefully that continues to improve. And he's his numbers are phenomenal. His winning percentage is the most important thing. has been phenomenal. And um, he's not only given himself confidence, but he's given our team confidence. Northern beat writer Ryan Steig, a friend of the show, he's on here every Friday, talked about an interaction he had with Nolan after the game on Saturday in which he asked Nolan, does it feel good? Does it give you a little bit of something to strut around that you have that number one spot secured? Nolan just kind of shrugged his shoulders. Ryan asked Coach about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of his personality a little bit too, that, you know, he's a worker and, um, you know, if you look back at the the trajectory and the history of when he got here. Um, we've talked a little bit about this. Kids from Western Canada, they're very good hockey players. Um, you know, I think American players or players from bigger cities in the western part of or the eastern part of Canada grow up around training facilities. Um, American players grow up in an environment where you play football and baseball and ba- basketball, and it's kind of ingrained in your high school culture. Like you're going to start training and lifting weights. Um, that's not always the case for Western Canadians, and he probably fell in that category that he got to college hockey and was surprised by the men that he was surrounded by, you know, because you're coming from a league that um, is a lot of players like you where, you know, maybe the strength conditioning isn't at a level required to be successful based on your talent ability. And um, he had to really, really work to get his body in the right, you know, condition, and then mentally get himself to a point where he could keep pushing through when his body was telling him no, 
um, to have a chance even to start the year with a chance to be a starter. So he did all that. Um, then he had to go through all kinds of struggles early in the year with his play, with uh, being pulled by me, um, you know, different things again that, that he hasn't had an easy ride. Um, you know, so I think part of that's just been his journey. You know, it's, it's kind of motivated him. And, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of becomes a little bit of your mentality. And I think he's got that junkyard dog mentality. So Northern climbed two spots in this week's rankings to number 17. This weekend, they take their five-game win streak up against top-ranked Cornell. The Big Red ranked number one in the country as they get set for a collision course with Northern this weekend. Well, yes, the power play is really good. Um, every statistical category they have, um, if you're in the top 20 consistently in those, you're usually a playoff team or an NCAA team. They're in the top 10 in every category like about one and they in 15 games they've only given up 22 goals so number one you got to be able to score um you know they're 12 and 0 when they score first their power plays six in the country so you you have to win the special teams battle and you have to not only do you have to score but you have to defend because you're not going to get to five four on them you know you're gonna have to win the game two to one or you know, maybe three to two. So um, very similar in a lot of ways to Mankato um, with how they work and how they defend and um, generate offense a little differently, but um, still a real dangerous team. Coach was asked about last year's series with Cornell. Is that still fresh in the back of their minds? Yeah, we got majorly outplayed the first night. Thought we played very well the second night. Um, just came up a little bit short. Um, but we're trying to. What we're trying to do now this week is show them who we're playing. Because you, when you don't, we don't see somebody like. We don't have to show them Bowling Green. We don't have to show them Mankato. They know who they are. Um, you really don't have to show them St. Cloud or Michigan State either, because they're on enough TVs or their um, proximity to them. Whether it's players they know on those teams or they played this team, and we know that you know. It's, there's a little bit more familiarity with them. Um, you know, we're very unfamiliar with them. You know, we've played them twice, and it was early in the year. Um, so we're trying to get them to a point with video as much as we can that they have an idea of how they play, who they are, um, you know, what they do that's going to cause you trouble, how we're going to prepare for that, um, to get us in more of a, a regular mindset as we would with any other team where you have a little couple things in the back of your mind before the game starts. Coach weighed in as to whether his team's current five-game winning streak factors into their mentality for this weekend. Well, I think anytime you're playing well, you know, you have a, a little bit of extra jump in your step. Um, and the teams we've played, you know, we've, we've played uh, teams that are very similar to Cornell. Uh, Bowling Green's very similar. Um, Mankato's very similar. You know, there might be a little more stick skill on, um, on the Cornell team than maybe um, some of the other teams we've played, but um, the approach to the game is the same. And, like, the physicality part of it, you know, you have to draw back to those games where the, the games we played the best, we were the most physical, and that should give us some confidence and some ability to know if we, if we can match the physicality that they're going to bring, um, then we have a, a, a chance to have some success. If there was one area in which Coach wanted to see his team get better or does still want to see his team get better, it'd be special teams. I'm disappointed in them. We're 
since the break, we're 76% in the penalty kill and 70, 17% in the power play. And um, those numbers are both probably skewed. You know, probably the penalty kill hasn't been that bad because of the five on three and four on three opportunities we've had against. And the power play probably hasn't, and 17 is not a great number. Um, we probably haven't even been that good because we've had five on threes and, and four on threes and some of those things. So um, uh, we have to improve those. Um, you, you just, you can't keep, you can't keep taking eight penalties a night for sure. Um, and then conversely, when you get a five on three or you get a power play in an important part of the game, you have to give them a dagger or you have to increase the lead and get an insurance goal or you have to get yourself back in the game or, you know, sometimes momentum is just not enough and um, we have to be sharper on it. Now the penalties have been an issue for Northern all year long. Coach was asked, are you still taking bad penalties? I thought last weekend there were some stick penalties that, that we need to uh, eliminate. Um, we'll kill the Garrick Lee penalty all day long, um, you know, where he just has great physicality, you know, and um, sometimes that's a charging penalty and it ended up being a charging penalty. Never get scored on those, never, ever, ever. You get scored on on hookings, holdings, trippings, um, penalties where you're out of position because uh, either you didn't sort it well enough or you weren't quick enough to the fight and then you have to reach and use your stick, and those are the ones that get you. And, and we still have a couple of those that we, we have to clean up. Northern Michigan hockey head coach Grant Patoni, his team getting sent to take on number one Cornell this weekend. Let's turn over to swimming here before we sign off. Heidi Voigt and her squad getting set for the inter-squad meet this weekend. So we have an inter-squad meet this weekend. Um, it's our last kind of chance to fine-tune some racing um, when we do some fun events before the GLIAC Championships, which is in February. So it's right around the corner. I can't believe less than five weeks away, and uh, we'll be getting ready to go. So um, we do do a couple things. Um, we do what's called uh, Wildcat Skins, and uh, it's kind of a team competition where uh, they have to get up and race 100 IM, and then at the end, the top eight finishers do kind of like they, they'll do a 50, and the, whoever finished the last two is out. And then they'll do another one, the last two are out. So it comes down to, like, the top two. And uh, that's always fun, and the team gets behind it. Um, but it's really a good weekend to recognize our seven seniors. We have um, three women and four men that will be um, kind of present, presenting. And we also, another fun thing we do is we invite other sports to do a relay. And so we do an all-sports relay, so that's always fun to watch other people swim. So who's standing out, Coach? We asked her, who are some names that we need to know? Yeah, you know, we have some really great women freshman talent and, and men freshman talent as well that I'm pretty excited about. Um, Michaela Nelson's been, you know, kind of really a core person for us all year. Uh, Jenna um, Yeager's going to be doing great. Um, Mandy Baird won... Um, both boards on last weekend so I, I, I think that uh, our younger group has really stepped up. So you've got the conference meet coming up is that where the focus is pretty much? Pretty much yeah the, we've changed our training just a little bit and um, it's really revolved around getting them prepared like what events come what day because the conference meet is a pretty in big invitation or championship meet they four full days of racing and they have to race in the morning and only the top 16 make it back at night and same with diving only the top eight make it back at night so 
and it's four full days. So um, they really need to get in that mindset. Coach was asked, what's the team's mood going into conference? I think um, our men aren't quite as deep this year, but we have really good talent. And um, I think we can surprise people in some relays there. Um, our women, you know, it's kind of one of those, if, if we can just hang on and be healthy, uh, get a couple of our injured people back together, um, I think that they could really, really make an impact. Coach gave us her thoughts on where her team is so far. We um, had a really good training trip, which is important to uh, get down and do some uh, long course meters training, which is kind of like our pool double plus some. So, you know, in that break before in between semesters, it's really good time to get in some good training. And, and they did some great training and um, look in really good shape. So, yeah, I, I'm happy so far. Let's see how we finish. That's Northern Michigan swimming and diving coach Heidi Voigt, her team getting set for their inter-squad meet and then conference upcoming. That's it for us here in ESPN-UP. I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, and it's my hope that you join me. Until then, we'll see you tonight for Westwood Girls Basketball and then back here for the Sports Pen tomorrow on ESPN-UP WZAM. Ishpeming Marquette.